The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. I take refuge in the Buddha who pervades all ten directions, whose actions are supreme, who is omniscient, whose form is unhindered and unimpeded, the one of great compassion who saves the world. I take refuge in the intrinsic reality and characteristics of the Buddha body, the ocean of suchness, Dharma nature, and the store of countless merits. And I take refuge in those who practice in accordance with what is real. This is because I wish to have sentient beings eliminate their doubts and abandon wrongly held views and give rise to the true Mahayana faith, leaving the Buddha lineage uninterrupted. So this week I've been spending a little bit of time on a section from the, a treatise on awakening the faith in the Mahayana, which is a sixth century text that I've spoken of a little bit, so I won't say too much more about it here. Other than that, it is a text that makes its intention clear, which is to cultivate, help us to cultivate faith in the Dharma, in the Mahayana teaching, and in particular for those who are in need of cultivating faith, and it's geared off uh, in, in many ways towards, or expresses its, its intention towards those who are newer to practice. It's a text that doesn't at first glance seem to be geared to people who are brand new to Buddhism because it has some complexity to it. But that's, that's the way it is. So that was the opening homage to the three treasures that I read from. And the uh, text... The section that I'm drawing on is three kinds of aspiration to awakening. And it basically says that on the path of embarking on this Dharma path, that there are three kinds of aspirations that we can be cultivating and that are brought forth in various ways. There's the aspiration to awakening, awakening through the consummation of faith, through the understanding and practicing of the way, and through realizing the way. And what I've done is, earlier in the week, I focused on the second and third, and chose to, to focus on the first aspect of consummation of faith this, this morning, because I thought it lended itself a little bit more to a, a wider audience. And so this recognizes, the text talks about, and there are many teachings that talk about essentially how we're different. I spoke about this a little bit yesterday. We have the same nature. We're all human beings. So in more ways than we might think, we're, we have so much in common. And we are different. We have different karma. We have grown up in different ways, in different bodies, in different cultures, depending on where we grew up different parts of the country, for those of us who grew up in the U.S., and so and had different experiences, different families, 
different friends, different educations, different life experiences. So all of those go into the mix of what we call the self. And so it recognizes that there are those who, um, it says, among the undetermined, there is the need for faith. And this means recognizing that for much of the journey, sometimes for people for their whole journey, that there's always the possibility of turning back, turning away, not practicing. There is a point for certain practitioners where that's really no longer an issue. The practice is so integrated, so clear, so deep within them that that's not really a concern they have. The Buddha spoke of irreversibility. So this, much of this teaching is directed towards those who still are able to turn back, which I would say is <coughs> most practitioners. And that's not a fault. It's just a, a fact, right? And we see that. I mean, you've probably seen in your own practice fluctuations, times when it's very close and strong and unquestioning, and other times where it's not like that. It's distant, there are doubts. And so it says, there are those who have great capacity for goodness, deep faith in karma and causation, they practice the precepts. There are those who have strong karmic obstructions. Right? Life experiences sometimes, things we have done, things that have happened to us that have created a lot of karmic obstructions that will and must show up in their practice because we bring them with us. And in that way, we may progress along the path, we may not, we may regress. There are those who encounter favorable conditions that encourage them to practice, and of course, conditions that aren't favorable. And in, in Buddhism, all of those have the potential to help us to come closer, to develop more understanding and, and direct experience of what practice actually is, because let's admit it, we all come in with ideas. Sometimes, not so much anymore, but sometimes in the earlier years, I would see people and they'd come for the first time and say, I have, I have no ideas and expectations about practice. And I was like, really? Come on. I mean, even if you've never read about Buddhism, everybody comes in with ideas. We have some idea of what it is, what, it's going, what we're going to encounter, why we're going there, which is based on what we think it's going to be. I mean, we do this. And in a way, the challenge is what happens when the ideas that we do have encounter the reality. Can we yield? Can we release and meet it as it is? So coming to the Dharma through our own lives and body and mind and circumstances, what we have done in our lives, what we've given our attention to, what has been done to us, how we have responded to people, how people have responded to us, those responses to ourselves and others that we have sort of integrated and made habitual, what we call our personalities, our family and environment, schools, our economies. None of those determine 
you or what is possible for you. But they do all influence us. That is the nature of karma. It's not deterministic, but it can exert tremendous influence, pressure, inclination, dispositions about how we will experience things, understand them, respond to things, because that's what we've been doing. Those are the ways in which we have responded in the past. That's why we call them habits. And so sometimes those have, have been developed in such a way that when we come into Dharma practice, it actually, there's an alignment, right? It's not totally unfamiliar. Sometimes it is. It's quite different. Sometimes we've lived lives that are more sort of in tune with the life that the, the bodhisattva, that enlightened life, is, is encouraging us to live. And sometimes we've lived very different kinds of lives. And again, none of those are, are deterministic. A person can, in a sense, have very, had very favorable circumstances and, and seem to be very well disposed to just move right into Dharma practice and not. So being ever-present with Buddha nature. Why do we move forward? Why do we move backwards? And what is the role of faith? I spoke about yesterday that I would speak about today, faith as the, the ineffable, miraculous aspect of human nature. I mean, what is faith? What is it? I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> I invite you to ask the question, what is faith? In Evelyn Underhill's book on mysticism, she talks about suffering and sort of the human propensity. And she said, you know, we have to have food, we need shelter, we need water, we need warmth. There are certain things we actually need as physical beings, as animals, to live, like all living things. There are certain conditions that have to be met. But why do human beings, for instance, need beauty? Why do we need contact with each other? We don't need those things to live, but do we, in fact, need them to be fully human? And she says, why, when we experience something painful, do we have this universal propensity to, as the Buddha said, shoot a second dart, a second arrow, and languish in anguish? over that pain, when the source of the pain is gone. In other words, what is that propensity towards our internal misery-making, which is what Buddhism is all about? If you do not see the way, you don't see it even as you walk on it, we chanted this morning. When you walk the way, you're not near, but nor are you far. And yet, if we're deluded, it seems mountains and rivers away. And that's not a paradox or a dilemma or a, a riddle. It's just speaking the truth. And so there's never a question of inherent potential, but a nature. As Dogen said, do not doubt that you are a vessel of the Dharma. And yet, there is a need for faith. I was thinking this morning about... <laughs> 
all of the things that I never thought I would do or say in my life <laughs> or talk about, like faith. <laughs> Before I came into practice, I didn't like to talk about or, or you know, spirituality, religious. It was like I was not really interested. Faith, like what? Not my thing. <laughs> there were many things that I was thinking about, internal things, my life that were driving me into, into finding the Dharma. But I didn't think about it in those ways. I didn't think about it in the ways that spiritual and religious traditions generally do think about it. That came later. And so for me, it was a, a curiosity, a, a sort of unexpected surprise and a delight to begin to understand or inquire into this miracle of faith. Right? You know it when you are feeling it, when you have it. Right? But what does that even mean? Having it. Where actually is this it that you have? Can you locate it? How much does it weigh? Can you describe it? Actually? And yet we rely on it. It's indispensable. And we can put our faith in so many things, and that makes a difference. We might say that makes all the difference. What we put our faith in. And we see all so many possibilities of so many things we can put our faith in. And the catastrophes that that brings us to. And so in Buddhism, having faith in the Dharma is essential. Why? What happens when you trust something or someone? When you're in the presence of someone that you trust, what do you naturally do? Relax? Calm a little bit? Be open? Be vulnerable? Speak easily? Be less self-conscious? All excellent qualities to practice, to allow us to practice. If we didn't trust the Dharma, we wouldn't be here on some level. And we can have faith and be doubting at the same time. In fact, that is pretty common. And not a bad thing to question, right? To be actively doubting and sort of dwelling in doubt and making a, you know, a, a thing about doubting, that's not necessarily helpful. But to healthily, in a healthy way, question, examine, to want to understand, to realize, I don't really understand this. And that kind of bugs me because I'm in it. I'm doing this and I don't fully understand it. And there's a kind of a tension there that needs to be resolved. Because I'm in it, but I'm, in a way I'm on the outside, and, and that's not, right? If I want to be whole and integrated, and I want to fully engage this, I need to trust it. And as I've said, and, and as is made clear, that we have to begin in faith. And the miracle of it is that we have faith, and in a way, like, explain that. Why do you have faith? Why do you have faith in something that you don't know to be true? 
I mean, that sounds like it could be just foolish. And yet without that, we could never take a step towards something worthy of, a, of, of taking up. Because you can't know in advance. And so faith is that indescribable elixir that allows us to trust something because we feel something that gives us enough basis for turning towards, stepping towards, taking it up, beginning to examine, actually putting our ass on the line at least a little bit. Putting some skin in the game. And then we see, okay, there's a Sanskrit word that refers to this aspect of practice, which is come and test it. We could put that on, you know, the signs that churches have in front of their... And I thought about doing that, actually. (laughs) It's a little too churchy for me, but if we were going to do that, we could put in big, bold letters, come and test it. If you dare. (laughs) That's the difference, or that's the, the key, is it's not just faith. It's not just faith because the Buddha seems is a very impressive person, and I believe him. Good, not enough. We have to come and test it. And that's, that's what's been here since the beginning. That's what the Buddha made very clear. With the aspiration to awakening through the consummation of faith, The treatise says, what sort of person doing what sort of practices manages to consummate faith and is capable of arousing the aspiration to awaken? So the faith here is being expressed as giving us the capacity to raise bodhicitta, to raise the aspiration to enlighten ourselves and others, to alleviate our suffering and suffering of others. Because obviously, how could there be raising bodhicitta if we don't have faith? And so it's saying, what sort of person doing what sort of practices can consummate, bring into fruition, ignite their faith such that they can raise bodhicitta? The great fire, the great energy, the great doubt, the great commitment to liberate ourselves and others. And then it says... This is for sentient beings of the group not yet certain to achieve awakening. So it's calling us in because they have the power of virtuous roots to which they have been habituated and believe in the retributive effects of karma. They are so then given cap- capable of giving rise to the ten kinds of wholesome behavior in Mahayana analogous to the precepts, roughly analogous. They are weary of the sufferings of the cycle of birth and death. They arouse the aspiration to supreme body. They they manage to encounter Buddhas and make offerings to them and cultivate a commitment to their faith. In other words, even though they are not certain to achieve awakening, all of these aspects have been begun, have been begun to be cultivated. And those are allowing the person to 
bring forth and, 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 and make a commitment to this faith. And so it says, some will arouse aspiration by seeing, just seeing the image of a Buddha. You know, I think of that often when I pass a house, and I don't know the people, I don't know anything about them, but I see a Buddha image out in the yard. And I think some of the times, maybe they're practitioners, and some of the times there's just something about that image they want in their yard. (laughs) No, but I mean, because that image is evoking something in them. Maybe they want it just because it's cool, but maybe more than, maybe it it gives them a sense of something. It, It touches something in them. Years ago, I got a, in very early years of our prison work, I got a letter from an incarcerated person who said he was doing meditation in his cell. And a guard walked by and wrote him up for an infraction for meditating. In the early years, we encountered a tremendous amount of resistance and explicit obstruction to bringing Dharma into the prisons at the invitation of, of the incarcerated students. And I thought that was so interesting, unfortunate, but interesting that that guard would have been so provoked by the image of somebody sitting quietly, silently, turning inward. Like what kind of fear or anxiety or distrust did that arouse? We may not think of that as being so, such an unsettling image. because it's such a settling image. And so some will, in seeing the image of a Buddha, some will make offerings, some will receive instruction, some will learn from others. All of the different ways in which we can encounter the Dharma or just the seeds, sort of experience the seeds that are planted that lead us to seeking and encountering the Dharma. Some will be capable of arousing this aspiration on their own because of great compassion, the compassion of others. Somebody inexplicably, surprisingly, offers some gesture of kindness to you that gets your attention, that cuts through ideas and assumptions, and opens something up, makes you wonder, draws you in, ignites a sense of possibility. And the interesting thing about, the wonderful thing about Dharma, and faith, for that matter, is because it has no fixed form, because it is not a thing, because it doesn't dwell anywhere, it can never be lost. Right? It can't be given to you nor can you give it away, but it can't be lost. Although we can have a sense of having lost it, we can't be distant from it, even though we can have the sense that it is distant. But in actuality, that's not true. And so you can be a thousand miles from the path in your mind for a thousand years, and in one instant, return. In one instant, return. You can turn away, and reject the Dharma. You can burn your Dharma books, burn your robe in Raksa, which is actually the proper way 
to get rid of dharma things if you must, usually when they wear out. But if in anger or whatever state you might be in, you can do those things, reject it, but it will never reject you. Think about that. And it's not that the Dharma unconditionally loves you. (laughs) It's not that kind of thing. It just isn't of the nature. And in the same vein, it's not, it is not working on your behalf. It's not rooting for you. It doesn't create obstacles. It's not passive. It's not any of these qualities. Those belong to us. We can attribute them to the Dharma, but that's our doing. That's something we're doing. The Dharma itself is just the nature of things. And because it's the nature of things, it is never apart, which means we are never apart from it, which means it is always present. We can always discover it, make contact, renew. And so it says, through what kind, through the perfection of faith, what kind of mind is to be cultivated? What is this faith helping us to cultivate? And so it says, there is a mind that is directly focused because one is true in one's mindfulness of the Dharma of suchness. So in arousing faith, right? in arousing faith, we're arousing a mind. We're arousing a state of being. That's why it's powerful. It's not just something that sits on the shelf. It embodies, is embodied, it infuses. That's why it's so powerful. That's why, isn't it, that it is so present within the realm of religious or spiritual traditions. Because if they have a mystical basis, then there is a point where you have to leap from what can be known. You have to leap into what you can't know in advance and can never know in ordinary ways. And how could we do that but with faith? The faith that there is something that can be experienced in such a way, the faith that there is a way that can help you to do that, and the faith that you yourself are capable of that. And so the mind that that arouses first is a directly focused mind, a clear, bright, mindful mind, mindful of the Dharma of suchness, even before it's realized that things are in their original state, already complete and peaceful and patient. And as I was speaking about earlier, so then when we're sitting, what we're really trying to do is to stop trying to move away from it. We're trying to stop denying that that's our nature. And the habit of that denial is what is so strong. That's what we're struggling with. And that when we can relax and relinquish, renounce, let dissolve, that faith in samsara, that faith in 
I and me and mine, that faith in you are not me, the faith in things having absolute being and power and self. That when we're practicing, what we're doing is trying to allow ourselves to be mindful and to move directly into or return to in our perception, in our awareness, to that basic state, a directly focused mind. So all of the stuff we're wrestling with in Zazen, we could think of as all of the expressions of our denial. That's not me, that's not me, that's not what is, that's not the way it is, that's not the way it is. (laughs) Which is maybe why it's such a struggle. Maybe it's why samsara is so painful. The second is a profound mind, because one takes pleasure in amassing all good deeds. So what the first is a directly focused mind able to turn directly into. And that's why Zazen, the element of Zazen, which is non-distractedness, is so important. Not because thoughts in and of themselves obstruct, but they appear to. See, that's the thing. They themselves, by their nature, don't have the capacity to obstruct. I mean, think about why one thought arises, boom, gone. Another thought arises, they're made of the same stuff. Why do we respond so differently? It's not the thought. It's our perception, it's the karma that arises with it. And so that's why when we become less distracted, the power of that, in a sense, that self-deception, that's what's calming. And that opens up this profound mind that goes hand in hand with cleaning up our house, right? getting our house in order which means those things that we have been doing in our lives, that I've been doing in my life, that have been causing trouble, deal with it. I want to be in a world, in, I want to be in this world in a way that I'm not creating more trouble. Make it explicit. I'm not adding to the confusion. I'm not adding to the divisiveness. I'm not adding to the poison. Very good. Now, what do I need to do to not do those things? And so, too, the profound mind takes pleasure in not creating harm, right? Which would seem self-evident, but, you know, we get a lot of pleasure out of creating harm. That's why it's so easy to sell it. And so when that begins to shift and we realize, oh, that kind of pleasure is actually painful. The Buddha said, see the pleasure that we get from them, those unwholesome actions, and then look further and find the danger. And then the third is a mind of great compassion, because one wishes to free the sufferings of all sentient beings. So remember again, these are what the faith that we're cultivating, the mind, the, the, the faith that we're cultivating brings forth these qualities of mind, a focused mind, that sees directly and begins to practice in accord with our actual nature, the mind that delights in living well and simply and straightforwardly, 
Milarepa said, I think it was Milarepa that said, the reward is to live and die without regret. And that is not a small thing. And the third is the mind of great compassion that wants to deeply, aches to free ourselves and others of suffering because the suffering is heartbreaking. I was reading a, um, oh, well, maybe not. (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe so. I was reading a a book that I received uh, on the life and teachings of uh, Tangen Harada Roshi, who was a a well-known 20th century a Japanese master, Zen master in the Soto tradition, who has a, a role within our own um, sort of Western Buddhism. Very interesting. It's called Throw Yourself into the House of the Buddha, which I think taken from a Dogen fascicle. Um, Dada Roshi actually met with Tongan Harada Roshi many years ago on one of his trips to Japan. There are some images of them having tea together. He was very old at that point. But he talks about... <clears throat> And it's very interesting. Um, It's worth reading. I'd like to actually get a couple copies for the library. Because he had a very, very difficult um, life. He actually, in the World War II, became a kamikaze pilot, volunteered to be a kamikaze pilot. And knowing, they all knew that they were going to die for their belief in their country and their country's efforts. And he was the next in line to fly. And the morning that he was supposed to fly, Japan surrendered. And so he went on, when you, and he had a, went through incredibly vigorous training, really difficult training. But in his writings, you see this profound gentleness and love and compassion that comes out in his teachings. And here he's talking about patience. And he says, this world is one that demands patience. When you come to see things as they are, you'll see that it's only humans who are so impatient. The whole world is practicing perfect patience. This pillar that holds up the roof in the zendo stands tall, appearing to be nothing special. Suppose, though, that the pillars pillars convene together in order to complain of being overworked and undervalued. Nobody ever says thank you to us. And suppose that they decide just to fall down on the job. All on your heads, the roof comes crashing, boom then their work would be appreciated for the first time. He said, the great bodhisattva pillar is practicing patience, Buddha life, directly revealed, working all the time for the benefit of others. The pillar never complains. The tatami flooring never discriminates against anyone, picking and choosing who can sit here. A single flower blooms with all its might for whoever happens to look at it, or for no one who happens to see it. These qualities that we have as human beings that are so quintessentially human, maybe not exclusively, but are so quintessentially human, to think, what is it that makes us not just human as in alive and surviving in an animal, but a human being worth having life, worth being in the world, worth being with other people, worth fulfilling 
all that our humanity possesses. And the Buddha Dharma is that gate, unlocking that gate. It too is not exclusive, but it is a path. And to reflect on these qualities of faith and patience that in one sense are so ethereal, right? they come and go. And yet how deeply we rely on them and feel them, experience them in ourselves and each other. And the worlds that they bloom, the gate, the doors that they open. And then very importantly, as a practitioner, what do you do when your faith seems to have dissolved and gone away? Don't underestimate the importance of such a time. As Merton once says, love and prayer are learned when your heart is turned to stone and prayer is impossible. That's really the, 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 the speaking from the place of a, of a deep, genuine practitioner who has traveled, who has traveled and knows That's why I said yesterday that as difficult as it may seem and can be at times, we actually need to experience difficulties in our lives. And as I said, that doesn't mean we should go creating more. We don't need to do that. They abound. But it's facing those, those particular realities that we, our impulse is to deny or to get entangled in. And right there, is a pivot point. There is another way. It is a middle way. And in order to travel that long path, there are certain things that you have to have with you. Faith is one of those great traveling companions. And so when you are bereft of faith, but you are a practitioner, that is the path you want to be walking, you will find it you will discover how to bring that forth. You may need some help, so ask. And in that, you discover something that is invaluable, because now you no longer have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of things coming and going, of fluctuations, of ebb and flows. You don't have to grasp at something to try and preserve it because you need it. As I quoted yesterday, was it Padmasambhava who said, what we dread is transformed into something auspicious, something useful. So I'll end with a poem. Within the intricate web of causation, human lives unfold. A complex world of flowing streams. After all, not so complicated. Follow the example of the standing trees, tall, majestic, in the clear summer sunlight. Through every season, they never leave the place upon which they stand.
Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.